their own choosing. They suppress the truth of God, choose to believe lies, and create gods of their own. Because of this, God gives them over to impurity, perversion, and depravity. There can be no doubt about the standing of the unrighteous before God. They are cut off from him. They are lost. They are doomed if they remain in their sin and rebellion. But lest we spend too much time thinking about them and ignore our own condition, Paul quickly moves on to make it clear that God judges according to truth, not relative goodness or badness, judges according to our deeds because they reflect our response to the truth we have, judges without partiality, judging respectable and notorious sinners alike, and judges according to opportunity on the basis of what we know of whatever truth we do have. Well, that, I think, should be enough to convince everyone of their need for grace. But the self-righteous are even harder to convince than the unrighteous. So Paul continues addressing objections he knows the self-righteous will throw up to the idea that they too are lost and in need of forgiveness. Well, the most self-righteous in his day were the Jews. And apparently they had brought their self-righteous attitudes into the church. It would appear that many in the Roman church felt a name, a ritual, and a relationship with God was enough. Paul makes it very clear that it's not enough. Continuing our study in Romans chapter 2, beginning with verses 17 through 24. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. The Jews were God's chosen people. Surely, surely that gave them standing before God. They bore the name of Israel as Israelites or the name of Judah as Jews. They had been entrusted with the law of God, and they were proud of who they were. They weren't like the pagans groping in darkness. They knew the difference between right and wrong. They knew what God expected. They knew the law. 
They knew the way. They were to guide others to God. They were to be light in a dark world. They were the ones who were to instruct, to correct the foolish and teach the immature. They were God's people. They were Jews. Surely Paul wasn't thinking of them when he spoke of the judgment of God. Surely those of Jewish heritage wouldn't be judged like the unrighteous. To that kind of thinking, Paul says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? They knew what God said. But did they do it? They knew the law said, Thou shalt not steal. But did they take advantage of people in their business dealings and literally rob them blind? They knew the law said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But did they ever play fast and loose with foreign women and slave girls? They knew the law said, thou shalt not make unto me any graven image. But did they profit from idolatry by trading in pagan temples? Now, Paul wasn't just speaking hypothetically here. He was pinpointing areas of hypocrisy in the lives of many Jews, and they knew it. They boasted of being Jewish, of being God's people, of being the recipients of God's law, but they broke it just like everyone else. And Because they said one thing and did another, God was dishonored. Indeed, as Isaiah had noted long ago, the name of God was blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. If you're going to bear God's name, you better live up to it. It's not enough to call yourself a Jew or a Christian. You've actually got to be one. If you don't practice what you preach, you're worse than someone who doesn't preach at all. You know, people expect pagans to act like pagans. They don't expect those who call themselves Christians to act like pagans. That's why the world reacts more strongly to televangelists and preachers who are immoral than movie stars and politicians who are immoral. If we're going to bear the name of Christ, we better act like Christ. It's not enough to just have the name. It's not enough to be able to say that you're a Christian or a Baptist or a Catholic. In fact, a ritual is not enough. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If, therefore, the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew 
who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Circumcision was the physical mark of a Jew. God ordained it when he made his covenant with Abraham. We read of it in Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14. God said further to Abraham, Now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your descendants after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. As soon as God finished speaking with Abraham, he and his household were circumcised. Now, why God chose circumcision as the sign, we're not told. He could have just as easily said they should have tattooed the Star of David on their forehead if David had lived by then. But he didn't. He chose the sign, the ritual, and ordained how and when it was to be done. It's not our place to question God. It's our place to obey him. And the Jews scrupulously held to the ritual of circumcision. In fact, they eventually came to believe that their circumcision was their ticket into heaven, that Abraham was waiting by the gates of hell and would allow no circumcised man to be cast into hell. They began trusting more in the ritual than what it signified. You know, God had made it clear in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy that he expected a man's heart to also be circumcised. But they tended to forget that. So Paul is here calling on those who were trusting in a ritual to look beyond the ritual. Circumcision, Paul said, was of value if the law was kept. Not just the law regarding the ritual, but the law that the ritual signified. If a Jewish man did what the ritual committed him to doing, if he made a covenant with God to follow God's laws, then circumcision was very meaningful. It was a reminder of his covenant. But if he disregarded the covenant and disobeyed the law, his circumcision was meaningless. In fact, 
His transgressions of the law uncircumcised him, even though he remained physically circumcised. By the same token, Paul said an uncircumcised man, a Gentile, who obeyed the law of God and sought to enter into a personal covenant with God would be regarded as circumcised by God and would, in fact, sit in judgment over disobedient Jews. You see, it's not the ritual itself that saves us. It's what the ritual represents. That was true of circumcision, and it's true of baptism. There are many today who are trusting in their baptism to save them. But the physical act of being immersed in water, even in a church, by a preacher, saves no one. If it doesn't signify a dying to self, and the rising to walk in newness of life, it is meaningless. In fact, it can be harmful. It can give someone a false sense of security. Now, some people believe their baptismal certificate is their ticket into heaven, but it's not. You can be circumcised, baptized, and sanferized, And still not get into heaven if your heart's not right with God. Now, we've got to be careful not to take this passage too far and conclude that baptism is of no value. That if a man is baptized in his heart, if he's immersed emotionally into Jesus, that there's no need for him to be physically baptized in water. Many tend to believe that. But the New Testament makes it very clear that we are to be physically baptized in water for the forgiveness of sin. And if God ordained it, we do it. Now, that's not to say that God cannot save someone who hasn't been baptized. God can save anyone he wants to save. And if Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you shall be with me in paradise, he doesn't have to worry about whether or not he's been baptized. But for us, baptism is the proper response of faith, as long as it signifies an inward change that is taking place, a heart that is being converted, and a new life is being born of the Spirit. The ritual itself, however, whether circumcision or baptism, is not enough. In fact, even a personal relationship with God is not enough. Moving into the third chapter. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe 
Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words and mightest prevail when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Paul anticipates their cry. Well then, what's the advantage of being a Jew, of being circumcised, of being one of God's chosen people? He begins by simply saying, great, in every respect. And then he explains, first of all, They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Obviously, that is a great advantage. They had actually heard from God. They were recipients of his word. But then, before he gets to the other advantages, Paul strays a bit from the question. But he will, in effect, finish answering the question in chapter 9. There he will write of the Israelites... To whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises? Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? The Jews had many advantages over the Gentiles because of their special relationship with God. And God took that relationship seriously. In fact, even if some of them weren't faithful to the covenants that had been made between God and his people, God was going to remain faithful to his word. He was going to do what he said he would do. However, many of them had forgotten one very important part of what he had said. They had forgotten that the covenants were conditional, conditioned by their following up on their part of the deal. They began assuming that because they were his people, bearing the name and the physical mark of a Jew, that he would overlook their sin. Some had even gone so far as to reason that their sin and unfaithfulness was a benefit to God. They figured the worse they looked, the better God would look. That his righteousness would be more obvious when contrasted with their unrighteousness. That his truthfulness would shine more gloriously if they were liars. Some were even suggesting that Paul had said that Christians should intentionally do evil So God could be seen as a loving, forgiving Heavenly Father. Paul will address this heresy again in the 6th chapter. 
When after asking, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? He will exclaim, may it never be. Or as I like to translate it, God forbid. We must never assume that our relationship with God means we are free to sin. Nor can we take the I'm not perfect, just forgiven idea to that extreme. Our relationship with God is not a license to sin. And a righteous God will judge all sin the same, whether committed by an unbeliever or a believer. The only difference is that the penalty for sin will be transferred from the believer to the Lamb of God. If the believer is truly trusting Christ to save him and is continually surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. It's not enough to bear the name or to have even followed through with ordained rituals. It's not even enough to have what you consider to be a personal relationship with God. The only way to be saved is to surrender your all to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Anything less is not enough stand.